All right, this is an oral history interview uh, with Mike Pettit for the Robert J. Dole Institute of Politics at the University of Kansas. Uh, we are in my home in Washington, D.C., and today is February 20th, and I'm Brian Williams. Mike, let's start with a little bit of your Kansas background and talk to me. Okay. Well, I, I was born in Kansas. I lived in Wichita, Kansas. I moved to Topeka at the age of 10. I went to uh, University of Kansas, went to law school at the University of Kansas, and uh, after that moved to Kansas City and started practicing law in the late 1970s. And at what point did you become aware of uh, Bob Dole, and where was he in his career at that point? Uh, my most vivid early memories of Dole, of course, I remember him from the time he was elected to the Senate in 68 and followed his career at a distance. Uh, in 1974 when he ran for re-election against Bill Roy. Uh, Bill Roy was actually a neighbor of mine in Topeka and I went to school with all of his kids and I told Dole some years later or some months after I'd started working for him that I'd been friends with Bill Roy and had supported him in his campaign and Dole kind of thought it was funny but not really so uh, that I had become a Republican by the late 70s. Were you dismayed a little bit at uh, how that campaign was run? There were all the rumors about uh, the, the late negative ads over the last weekend before the campaign, and I didn't know enough about it to make a judgment at the time, but I was certainly aware of the controversies. And was your family background solidly Republican? No, fairly agnostic to neutral. I think probably my grandparents had been Democrats, and uh, my, my mother, uh, my father died when I was young, my mother was a Republican by the by that time in her life, but not she wasn't involved in partisan politics really. So, uh, when did you then connect with with the Dole? Well, actually, in a backhanded way, I was practicing law in Kansas City. Graduated from law school in 1979, and uh, really didn't like what I was doing in a small litigation firm, and started brainstorming with different people about other career career options. And a guy that had worked for Congressman Wynn by the name of Dick Bond said, you would be perfect to go back to Washington and work on the staff there. And so he tried to persuade me to be interested in working for Larry Wynn. They didn't have any openings. And then he said, you might talk to the Dole people and also Nancy Cassebaum because you'd really be a good fit in the Senate. So I sought out Kim Wells, who had formerly worked for Dole, and I knew him. We, we had some mutual friends, and we met, got along, and became friends. And he, he then recommended that I go speak with Dole, and, and that process unfolded over the course of the next year. And after the Republicans won control of the Senate in the fall of 1980, um, I was offered a job in, in 81, and I, I moved back to Washington to start there. And what was your first encounter with Dole like? Did you have a job interview? I went back there to interview with him uh, in December of 1980. During the, I took a day off from work, didn't tell anybody in my law firm where I was going, and uh, got there, showed up in Dole's office, and nobody seemed to know that I was coming, and nobody seemed to know what I was supposed to do, and it turned out that they were debating the windfall profits tax on the Senate floor, and Dole was the ranking Republican at the time. He would become the Senate Finance Committee chairman a month later, so he was tied up all day, so I never saw him during the time of my job interview. I met some of the staff members. And then there was a delay in making any decisions about hiring anybody because this was after Dole had been, been re-elected in 1980. 
and there had been a considerable amount of staff turmoil. So they brought in a, cons a consulting firm to take a look at the staff, figure out what was wrong with the structure and the functions. And I think that re report took three or four months to prepare. And Dole just said, I'm not going to hire anybody until that report is done. So, so that all played out in the spring of 1981. And, and in July, I was offered a job. It surprises me a little bit, a consulting firm, because so much of what I heard, I've heard about Dole operating sort of, quote-unquote, by the seat of his pants and just at his own choosing, that th that's interesting that they were, they were bringing someone in to uh, shape things up. I think there had been a period of maybe two or three years where they had a series of administrative assistants. That is the, the term that they used back then to, to connote chief of staff which was the job that I ultimately had, administrative assistant, the per personal uh, staff, chief of staff. Uh, they might have had five or six or seven in a period of three or four years. And, I, and at one time, literally, people on the staff couldn't remember how many different bosses they'd had. And, and Dole knew that was a problem management-wise, and certainly he had ambitions and needed to straighten that out. And, and uh, so they, my understanding is they took some campaign funds and legitimately paid for some... Uh, management advice and got it. On the plane going back to Kansas after your first interview with people in the office, what was your frame of mind? This is a job I really want or? Well, it I was an exciting time and, and I was a, a believer in what Ronald Reagan was going to do for the country and not that I was a huge fan of Reagan at the time, but I, I knew there would be big changes and I knew it would be an exciting time to move to Washington and and so I was gung-ho about it and yet very pessimistic about my chances of, uh, I hadn't even gotten an interview with the guy that was in the position to hire me. So um, I didn't really think that it would turn out. I was, I was disappointed. Who, do you recall who you did uh, interview with? I met, I met Randy Miller. Uh, Randy was, uh, at the time, a senior staff person. He, he, at one point, had the job title of policy director after this big management shakeup. And he's the one that ultimately did offer me the job. Uh, I met with Randy. I met with Bob Lighthizer on the finance committee. And, uh, and I think that's it. And did they give you any warning signals? Or was it all sort of a positive experience? No. The warning signals meaning that uh, Dole could be a mercur mercurial person to work for. Uh, I knew that. I knew that from Kim Wells and other people. But... I was I was pretty full of myself then. I figured I could handle whatever he would throw at me. So you get word. When did you say that you would were being? Hired? Uh, finally, I got uh, Kim. I remember that Kim called me in uh, late May or early June, uh, and said they have finalized this process and now they're going to put the staff in place. And Dole had been had put had had to focus on putting the finance committee staff in place and and to shepherd the tax bills uh, through. Anyway, so now they were ready to focus on putting the personal staff together, and that was in late May or June. And then I got a call from Randy Miller saying, would you be available to meet me and, and Senator Dole? And it turned out we could never get together with Dole's schedule, or he wasn't in Kansas at the right time in the, in the Kansas City area when I was there. So I ended up just meeting with Randy, and, and he offered me a job. As? Legislative assistant for... I, I was responsible for uh, the Banking Committee, the Commerce Committee, the Small Business Committee, uh, and 
banking means housing, urban development as well, and there were one or two other committees. But it was subject matter specific uh, legislative aid. And at that time, uh, Dole was on the banking as Dole wasn't. These were in areas of committees that he was not on. And did you have any particular background in those areas, or was that just sort of your assignment? Not really. I would say not really. I had some general exposure as a lawyer and to some of the areas, but no, you wouldn't have hired me for my expertise in any of those areas. You just I was like 100 kids, 1,000 kids that come to Washington, and somebody says, we can teach him something, and you know they throw you in the pool, and you sink or swim, and that's kind of the way it was. So <clears throat> what were those, what was the first year, say, like? Well, I did a major telecommunications act within the first month I was there. Uh, the Telecommunications Act, of, in fact, the bill was entitled S-898, and it was passed in late September 1981. So almost immediately, I had a chance to spend a lot of time with Dole, or I should say writing a lot of memos to the senator that he read or didn't read. Uh, he would check them off, act like he, he would read them. But, of course, why would he take advice from me? He knew that I was a kid from Kansas that didn't know anything about these subject areas. So I remember during the consideration of this first bill on the Senate floor, uh, I was all excited and I'd done my homework and stayed up all night writing these memos. And all I was going to do is tell him which way to vote on certain amendments. And, and I was on the couches in the back of the Senate and Dole walks in and looks at me and kind of make, makes eye contact and then proceeds to walk and asked of the committee council, which way should I vote on this amendment? So he wasn't going to pay any attention to my advice anyway. So he may have done that just to teach me. You know, I'll, I'll follow your advice when I know that you have had enough experience to, to trust. At the end of that ex experience, at the end of the bill, he called me into his office and said something I will never forget. He said, I'm sorry you didn't have time to take those memos and get them all into one page. That takes a lot more work to do it that way. But when you learn how to do that, then it will be really useful for me because I will know that you have done all the work necessary to decide what's important enough to put on one page. I've never forgotten that advice. And every person that's ever worked for me, I've made them do that same thing. You'll only accept a one-page memo. To, no, not always, because I can always ask for the 10-page or the 30-page. But I want to know what is the essence of the argument you're making and what is it that you think is most important. And that's the way it was with Dole. He used to throw memos in the trash if they were two and three pages. He he wrote one time, gave it back to me back when I was in charge of the staff and said, I don't have time to read novels and told me to give it back to another staff person. And he was trying to teach us. He was trying to teach us how to think. And he did. Somewhat indirectly, but... Uh... Well, no. Oh, a, lot, a lot of people couldn't handle that kind of teaching. Yeah. A lot of people were devastated and would go off and sulk, and, and I probably did too from time to time. But over, over time, you learn how to train your mind. You learn how to think. So for what length of time were you in L.A.? Uh, for two years. Uh, then in the spring of, of 83, we still didn't have, we had not had anybody in the job of administrative assistant, the the compromise that the consulting firm came up with would be that there was somebody called an administrative director and a policy director, and, and the paths wouldn't cross, except that wasn't the real world. Somebody needed to be in charge of the staff. So Dole came to that conclusion and, and 
probably offered the job to a number of other people and finally couldn't get anybody he wanted and had to settle on me. So. And how did he express that? How did he appoint you? Uh, he, uh, it's actually a good story. It was a Monday morning, and he walked into my office, and he said, what are you doing today? Said, Whatever you want me to be doing. What am I doing today? And he said, come on, why don't you go to New York with me? So, okay. So we flew to New York, and he was giving a speech at the 21 Club. And uh, we flew all the way up there. We talked, just as cordial as could be, and you know, talk, told me about the speech he was giving, who the group was. and This is a side of him I hadn't seen much of, and... I knew there was a reason for it, but I didn't know what. On the way back, and then, and then somebody, something happened. No, it's not important, but he had to change the sequence of his speech. So we spoke, he spoke second, which means we were in New York all day. And we flew back, and about mid to late afternoon, we landed at National Airport, and we're taking the car back in, and he finally brings up the subject that he wants to, the reason that he wanted to take me to New York. He said, you know, I've been thinking that you would be a good person to run the staff. Would you Would you consider doing it? And, you know, I was 29 years old at the time, inexperienced, couldn't have possibly been qualified for the job. And, and I did have the sense to say, well, I don't know what exactly do you have in mind. We would have to, I want to know some details. So so we began meeting in his, in his hideaway office and kind of negotiating a little bit. And, you know, to the extent I could negotiate with him, which I had no leverage, he could just say no. But I... I But he imposed a condition. I couldn't consult with anybody else before I worked out the terms of my job with him. So I was not, I mean, which had that happened today, I would have asked anybody in the world, okay, what is it I want him to agree to? But not possible back then. So I had to go meet him in his hideaway office a number of times. And all he wanted to know is when was I going to find some new talent for the staff? And when was I going to fire this person and that person? And it was all about a reshuffling. But you know, he needed somebody that, you know, could could go fire people and hire new people, bring new new people in. And, and I did. I committed to do that. And we, we tried. For how long? I did the job for four years, uh, you know, through some interesting and fun times and, and great times. And I, I insisted on continuing. My, I didn't want to be just the manager of all the staff. I needed to keep my own subject matter expertise because I liked doing some of the work that I was doing. So... I kept doing the banking work and the, and the telecommunications work. That was at a time when a lot of exciting things were happening in telecommunications. So I was smart enough to retain that jurisdiction and, and really built my career on that expertise. Uh, so kind of a lucky. And how large was the staff over that period of time? Uh, up to about 40 or so. Uh, at one time during this time, he was the... Uh, uh, he had a subcommittee on the Judiciary Committee, and he began to assume that those people would really report to me, so I started kind of managing that group of people in addition to the direct staff. But I never managed the Finance Committee. That was always a separate exercise. And then in 85, you were still there when he became leader. Right. And then there was a leader staff. Right. And he said to me after the... 84, after the, he was selected majority leader in, in 84, he said, he called me in and he said, I need you to commit to me that you will stay on the staff until I'm reelected in 86. I need you to stay right here. It was his way of saying, you know, I don't see a role for you over on the leader staff. 
uh, you know, he had kind of he was he was moving the finance committee staff over there, plus one other person from judiciary and another couple of people that he inherited. So I didn't didn't know what I would do over there anyway. So it was fine with me. I committed to stay on the on the Kansas on the on the on his personal staff until and then in in eighty seven. Uh, when he was gearing up to run for president, we began having discussions about, you know, I was a little burnout in the job and I wanted to work on the campaign. And, and uh, so we, we actually had a conversation about starting a consulting business and, you know, being able to travel a little bit with him on the campaign and, and contribute in whatever ways I could. So that was a, a natural way for me to transition out of the job. And so you <clears throat> went through that campaign from until he withdrew? right. right. And then just to finish up this overall chronology, then where did you go? Well, I started my consulting business in the summer of 87, and I'm still running it today. So it, um, I've moved to California, but I've come back and forth to the Washington area. So it's still, still the same kind of general government relations practice. Um, you talked about the hideaway uh, negotiations you had prior to you accepting the, the position. Uh, were there a lot of tough decisions to make? firings and so forth? Or? There were a couple of, uh, you know, I hadn't had the benefit of really knowing about some of the work of what, what had been my contemporaries and colleagues, so I wouldn't have known of the degree of his dissatisfaction, uh, except in general. So, you know, it was, you know, again, I was a young, inexperienced kid, and I, I didn't really welcome the idea that that was the first thing I was going to do was clean out a couple of people and start over. I was excited about the idea of hiring new people. Uh, the first person I offered a job to was uh, Sam Brownback. Uh, he was an up-and-coming uh, young politician in Kansas that had some talent, and I went out and recruited him and found him and, and told Dole I wanted to hire him, and he said, okay. And Sam said, I think I'll just chart my own career path. Thank you very much. I don't think I need to come and work for the senator. I think I'll, I'll run for office out here, and but I'm interested in what you do. He was very gracious in, about it. So. And uh, what about some of the other long-term people on the personal staff? I'm thinking of, say, Joanne Coe and them. Uh, that was the subject of our negotiation that lasted many sessions. How are you going to break the news to Joanne, Senator, that I'm in charge of the staff? Well, I'll take care of that. No, what are you going to tell her? So we worked worked out this agreement that he then changed, uh, and the the net effect of it was that Joanne didn't report to anybody. So she was allowed to operate on her own, autonomously, and specifically not under my direction. What were your relations like with her? Off and on. I, I, at the end of the day, and I say this today, uh, I liked her. I respected her. Day-to-day combat with her was not fun. I didn't have the skills or the tools to, to fight as you needed to fight every day to stay on your feet back then. She, she knew how to get under my skin, push my buttons, and she did. And she found a hot-headed young guy that overreacted to her, and I wish I had the wisdom that I do today, and we would have all gotten along better. I tried to keep Dole out of it, but once or twice I had to bring him in and say, had enough of this. This is what your administrative director is doing today, and I thought you should know about it. And Lord only knows how many times she did the same thing to me. What about others? Did you have 
were there other? You know, Betty. Betty was the gatekeeper, and uh, same thing. I love Betty today, and we had more than our share of good times and laughs, and and cooperated when we had to. She she never let me down, but she could be she could be petty, and 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 she could make life very difficult. I mean, there were times when when Bill would tell me to do something, and to do it would mean I'd need to get like a phone number from Betty, for example. I don't have that phone number. I just don't have it. You know, there were things like that that would just, sometimes they just would make life difficult for reasons that I don't, I never completely understood. But they had a long history of relationship with Senator Dole going back to the House days and, and, and other occasions. And, you know, I, I knew that I could never change that or penetrate that. So I just did the best I could. Do you have any observation to make on Dole's interactions with women rather than men? Is there anything there? I think he allowed himself to be closer to women and women to be closer to him. Uh, I wouldn't want to psychoanalyze him. He was very close to his mother, and I spent some time around the senator when we would visit Russell and I'd see him with his mother, and I think the there was something about that that trans transferred into his relationships with other women um, on the staff, and I think he uh, he could keep men at a distance, maybe easier. And a lot of both men and women, a lot of people wanted to really be close to him, and really revered him, and wanted his approval, and he withheld that approval for the most part. He was not emotionally equipped to satisfy other people's needs in that way. And what about, I'm thinking particularly of, of uh, um, Betty and, uh, and Joanne, what, how would you characterize their attachment to him? Well, they were fiercely loyal. He was their life. They had had previous battles and bonding experiences that, that I could only imagine, and so I knew there was an inviolate bond there and a trust. Um, they were jealous of those relationships they had with him, and they didn't want anybody else to interfere with that. And, uh, you know, Dole knew about some of what went on and some he didn't. He was helpless in some ways to, to all of that. I, I know, I probably shouldn't say this, but Elizabeth was very sympathetic to me when she was Secretary of Transportation. She used to call me and say, and this was right after I had been named. She said, "How are you, how are you getting along? How are you dealing with Betty and Joanne? What is it? What can I do to help? What kind of insights can I give you?" And I, I used to go over and see her in the in in her office at the Department of Transportation. We'd sit down and talk about, you know, how, Elizabeth, I'm not equipped to do this. I want the best for your husband, but how do I deal with this? I, I really don't know. We're not serving him well collectively. Everybody spends all their energy dealing with these battles someday. Then there would be periods of time when that wasn't the case, when we'd, we'd all get along and we'd find a common, a common purpose. And, but, yeah, there was a lot of internal friction there that I, I hadn't thought about until you asked me these questions. I've put it all behind me, but it, it was certainly there during those years. Were there particular triggers? Yes. I mean, there were... Joanne had carved out for herself the role of administrative, administrative director, which doesn't mean anything. The words don't mean anything. 
but she had decided that she would be the person that Dole would consult with on all matters political. Well, that's almost everything. If you want to define it that way, that means only Joanne speaks to the White House. That means only Joanne does this or does that. And, you know, there was a candidate we were trying to recruit to to run for Congress once. And Joanne found out that I knew him and had been talking to him. And she's just apoplectic and raising arms. You can't do this. That's not your job. You can't talk to these people. And and those kinds of things happen. If it was something in her bailiwick, as she perceived it, then, you know, that was the, the way in which she imposed her rule. Um, nothing in particular would trigger it. With with Dole and Betty, you never knew. I mean, I, I, we, I laughed so hard. We used to, he would call me. He'd buzz me on the phone. Usually, Betty would say the senator would like to see you. But not always. He'd sometimes call and he'd go, go back around the back and slip in here. Need to talk to you a little bit. I'd go in there and he'd say, I just need to talk. Betty's, Betty's having one of those days. <laughs> he'd kind of mimic Betty and have fun. And she would have days where she would just be mad at the world. And, and it, it was this perfect dysfunctional day. But we, we managed. You know, she, she never walked off the job. She never did anything crazy. Uh, but she would, she would sometimes just get mad for reasons I never knew. Um, I'm imagining you coming home some nights being pretty distraught with all of this and uh, sort of without Elizabeth's help trying to figure out what to do. Well, I recruited some people to come work with me and we tried to focus on the things that we could do that were fun and constructive and we, we kind of tried to work around it. There were, you know, as the years have gone by, the frustrations I don't remember so well, but as I'm thinking about it now, the, there, there were periods where I, f- I felt, uh, n- I feel now as if I just didn't have the tools to keep the trains moving and doing all that and, d- and deal with all these uh, issues that have, from people. I just wasn't equipped to do that very well. I tried, but it, it infected a lot of relationships on the staff. I mean, they, you know, Betty and jo- Joanne knew how to divide and conquer, and they would have people that were loyal to them. And, you know, for a while, Joanne, she would, I was in charge of the payroll, and she would give people raises without telling me. And I thought, how did this happen? I'm, and I'd walk over to the secretary of the Senate's office or you know, the dispersing office, whoever managed that. And how did this happen? Well, Joanne put this in. Joanne doesn't have any authority to do this. Well, her signature's on here. So there were a lot of things they could do to kind of divide and conquer, and we did the best we could. You're describing a work situation, though, that is almost untenable. Well, it wasn't every day. Uh, there were just enough things to, to make it now amusing and then, and then annoying. Not just annoying, but, I mean, you're being undermined. Your authority is being uh, ignored and whatnot. Well, you know, the part of the recognition of how to get along with Dole I learned pretty early was to recognize no matter what you told him, he was going to have about four or five other sources of information, opinion, and authority on any subject. Uh, At the time, as a staff person, it would make you crazy because you feel like maybe he didn't trust you. Over time, you'd realize how brilliant it was in a way for him to have independent sources of input and information, and I think it led him to be very effective. But 
it meant that he kind of kept everybody guessing and at arm's length. That style wouldn't work for very many people, but it did work for him. Was there much staff turnover during your years? Not very much. No, no, and and this is a, it's it's really true. Despite what sounds like a dysfunctional environment, people were intensely loyal to Dole. They loved him. They people would would give anything to win his admiration, and people would work very hard to to try to accomplish something in his in his eyes. And uh, nobody was rushing out the door. First of all, this was at a time when he was for the first. I mean, he was had been the Republican National Committee chairman, he'd been the vice president of the but this time he was really a part of the inner circle. It was a very prestigious thing to be working for Bob Dole, and everybody knew it, and, and we served him loyally. People were intensely loyal to him. This is just occurring to me now. Do you think that his capacity to withhold approval and, and, uh, and thanks and whatnot almost put him in a stronger position than someone who'd been sort of lavish in there? Did he make people work harder for oh, him? Oh, of course. Because- Absolutely. He used it as a weapon, and he, and he got the results. He also wanted to separate people that were tough from people that weren't tough. He didn't want anybody working for him that was so needy. He did have some, but, but he wanted to find out who could operate in an environment with very little guidance or input from him and still figure out how to do a job and bring back a work product to him. Those were the kind of staff people that he wanted, and those were the ones that did well. So toughness was a was an important. Absolutely, you you had to be tough, and you had to be able to be kicked around a little bit, and you had to be able to be resourceful and figure out uh, on your own how to go figure something out because he wasn't going to tell you. He did it by design. He used to make us crazy. You know, if he would just say three words, I'd save twelve hours. But once you went through that exercise two or three times. You learn how to shrink the 12 hours down. You really, I mean, I, it's crazy. I learned how to think like he thought. Uh, very, very closely mimic his thought patterns for a period of years and, and for many years after I quit working for him. Amazing. Um, how would you explain the working situation as you've just described it to someone coming into the office, a new hire? Don't expect direct guidance. I will get you through this on training wheels until you develop your own relationship with the senator, despite a lot of other staffs where the chief of staff or administrative assistant is between you and the senator. That isn't the way it works here. He will have his direct relationship with you. And if I'm lucky, I'll know what you're talking about so I can help you. But it's not a requirement. So I imposed a rule. I don't want to be in your relationship with Dole, but you have to copy me on every memo you send him. And that worked pretty well for a while. There were people that went around that process when they had to, but for, for a period of years, I think that worked. I generally knew what other, other, the other staff people were doing and could help them out in the margins. But Did you have occasions when uh, someone would come in in tears or obviously very distraught and you'd have to close the door to your office if you had a door, I don't know, and, uh, and help them recover? Uh, I did have a door to my office because I built an office because there was an office right next to Betty and Joanne. And after Dole asked me to do this job and he came back and he looked around and he, I was sitting back in the corner in a new place without a wall. And he said, oh, this is a pretty good spot for you. 
And I said, I was thinking about having the contractors come and build a wall for me back here. What do you think about that? And he said, he just went like that. And he said, great idea. So, so I did have an office away from, in the same office suite, but away from the hubbub right around his office. Uh, did I have people that came to me upset all the time? And, you know, usually a little bit of shared misery and we could get through it. And, and there were, you know, the, the, the frustrating part was Dole didn't always do it by design. He had everybody in the world pulling at him in one direction or another. He didn't always have time to reflect on every little detail. And so he, you know, he could teach people to think on their own, but there were limits. And so most of the time it was, you know, it wasn't the lack of intentional cruelty. It was just the lack of time for him to explain himself. But it would, some people would frustrate more than others. And, and I would take my hits for that because sometimes I would take up the cause of somebody. I'd say, Senator, I need you for a minute or two minutes. And I'd walk in there and say, you know, Mark needs to know this or Chris needs to know this. And, you know, he could take my head off if he wanted to, but it would sort of smooth things over and we'd usually get something constructive out of it. So what was your interaction like him, with him like on a sort of typical basis? You were in and out of the office a lot, very no, rarely. No, it, it was really sporadic. I mean, I, I tried to, I had a, probably a different view of the job I should do for him than he did because he was famous for walking around the office and saying, what's cooking? Meaning, you know, just tell me something. Give me, throw me some facts and I'll chew at, on it as I walk along. My attitude of my job is I was supposed to make every decision I could that he didn't have to, so he didn't have to make it. So I wouldn't answer him sometimes, and it would make him crazy. Be like, what, are you just sitting around doing nothing? No, I've actually made about 2,000 decisions, so you didn't have to be bothered by it. But he didn't really like that. He liked to know about all the little things. And uh, so we would sit down. There were periods when we would sit down sometimes for an hour every day and just no structure and just talk about anything, and it was very random. Could you know? But he didn't need notes. I mean, he just he kept everything up there. Uh, then there were times when, you know, two or three weeks would go by and I would deal with him memos, a quick phone call, something on the fly, and that was it. So really as needed. And how did you know that it was going to be one of those sparsely Oh, he weeks? never did. Oh, when, when it was sparse. Oh, I could usually tell by his other responsibilities. If he had a, a, a finance committee bill on the floor, then I know. This is going to be a time when he's going to be preoccupied, so we're going to have to compensate for that. Uh, or if he's got a heavy travel schedule or something, you know, there are plenty of, plenty of signals. Um, give me, uh, this is a, a screenplay, let's make a movie <laughs> type question, but uh, you would arrive in the office, I'm going to assume, perhaps before he did. What was the office like before he arrived, when he arrived, and sort of how that all happened. I would usually get there between 8 and 8.30, and usually he would get there between 8 and 8.30. These were in the years when he would always come to the heart office first. And there were times when at 8.35, not everybody on the staff was there. And I, I still have these notes somewhere. I should have brought them. He'd write me these little love notes, you know, Mike. We start work at 8.30. Your staff isn't here. Or, Mike, can you do something about this? If not, I'll find somebody that can. Those kinds of things. Kid kiddingly, but make making the point. Uh, 
So you never knew that some days he would be there early and need time on his own. And, you know, if there was a committee hearing, it would start at 930. So he might have had committee staff in there with him in preparation for a hearing. Um, you never knew. Some days he'd be in there. He would do what he needed to do. And he'd call me or John Peterson or somebody in there at, at uh, you know, 830. And we'd sit there. I mean, you, ne- you never knew. It was, you were totally, you know, he would go through these periods where he would say, you can't go to lunch with you because if I need somebody during lunch, I got to be get a hold of this before cell phones. You know, today you'd beep somebody or cell phone, but you know, I'd have to go to lunch. He'd have to go to lunch because he might have something that he needed somebody to do during the lunch hour. So it's all pretty, pretty. You know, un- didn't seem unusual at the time. And he did. He conducted walk arounds. Mm-hmm. What were they like? He'd just walk around. Say what I mean. He would he would use the occasion of if he had something he was working on or thinking about, he might walk out to that person's desk rather than invite have them come into his office. And it would be an excuse to walk around and say, "Hey, what's, what's cooking?" Just to be seen in the office, you know, normal kinds of things. Uh, he it was. I mean, that's I, I bet he said that ten thousand times. Hey, what's cooking? You know, it's just a defensive, just a reflexive. Uh, thing that might elicit anything, might elicit a, well, if you really want to know, now let's, and then he'd just walk off if he didn't really want to know. Sometimes he'd pick up a little thing and file it away. You say things got started around 8.30 in the morning. What about the other end of the day? What was that like? Could be anything. Uh, You know, uh, there's not a pattern that comes to mind. He almost always had something to do at the end of the day, a speech to give or a reception to attend or something. Um, so I, I can't ascribe a pattern to anything. It could have been anything. I mean, there, you know, there were nights when we all went home at six or six thirty. There were nights when people stayed there till midnight and worked on things. It just kind of whatever had to be done. And the assumption was, if he was in his office, the staff were all there. Right. Right. And he would do that on the weekends, too. He used to drive us crazy. Beautiful weekend. And he'd be in there. And on the weekends, there were times when he wasn't doing very much. But he would act like he was doing things and catching up. So you had to be there and wait around. I remember more than a few Saturdays. That's just what, that goes with the territory. But I remember at the time thinking, you know, wonder if we could just make this a little bit more convenient for me. And, of course, that wasn't going to happen. How were those structured? Friday night or at the close of day on Friday, he'd say, I'm coming in in the morning? or I'd usually have to figure that out from Betty, you know, and, and, and that would be one area where she was very cooperative. She didn't want to incur the wrath because she'd have to go call people and track them down if they weren't there. So usually somebody would figure out a way to get the word around and, hey, you need to be here tomorrow. You know, oftentimes it was very specific. I mean, there was a time when we were working on an arms control proposal and and he needed me and the and the guy that did the the arms control work there and we were talking this through and it was a you know a real three-hour policy meeting but those kinds of things happened on as scheduled on the weekends often but but sometimes it was just random was it only saturdays or sometimes your sundays were involved too sometimes sundays not so much i remember a few times uh you know there was a period in the senate history where senators could could earn honoraria to go give speeches and Dole loved to do that for the money, and he just loved having the action. So he would, 
I remember a few Sundays we'd fly somewhere and give speech and just, you know, spend time on the plane, you know, catching up on different administrative things and policy things, whatever needed to be discussed. Times like that, flying with him and whatnot, would some of the conversation be pretty casual and uh, non-political? Could be. You had to learn how to read his moods. Uh, there were there were time. Remember the first trip I ever took with him. Uh, I am amused now to think about all the subjects I brought up that were way off base that I wouldn't have brought up later. Uh, but usually you would. <laughs> I knew what was on his mind. I knew what he was thinking about, and I would try to find something in that field of reference and try to have a discussion about it, try to learn something or try to help him think something through. Go back to that first trip. What, 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 what did you, Well, what were your categories? It was, and... it was about two weeks after I started in August of 1981. And uh, they had just passed the, the Reagan tax bill and it was signed into law in the middle of August out at the Reagan ranch. Dole didn't go to the signing. But he went on a tour through the Midwest to tout the virtues of this economic plan. And I came to notice a curious way in which he'd talk about these things. He kept saying, the experts say, and they say. So I said to him, Senator, I was just wondering, since you were the chairman of the Finance Committee and you passed the bill, why do you keep saying that they say? How come you don't, how come you don't say? Oh, I made him mad. It really, really hit a hot button and was an impudent comment for a little staff guy to make in the first place. But, but I think also he really thought they'd gone overboard in the 81 tax cuts and he didn't want to have that discussion. So he kind of figured out this way of talking about it. So but that was just an example. I mean, there were personal things I asked him, I, you know, comments that I made, stories I told him about me that were totally inappropriate that he could have cared less about. But what did I know? Just as an aside, uh, had, had you started a family uh, during no, this period? I was, no, or you were I was single, single during, during that time. Um, what do you think were the reasons he selected you for that role? Oh, I think he'd probably tested me a couple of times. I was tough enough. I, I went in and told him one time in particular, I think, you have screwed up something royally, and I'm, I'm here to tell you I want to help you think through how to get out of it, but I think you've made a bad mistake. I think you've gotten some bad advice, and, and I think the way you tried to work your way out of it the other day was not constructive. And I mean to tell you, I thought he was going to fire me on the spot, and it turned out he respected me for telling, telling him that. But not immediately. It took him a day or two to come around and... and show me in his way that he respected what I'd done. Do you recall how he did show that? I, I did. The, the issue was that in the uh, 82 tax bill called TEFRA, where they had gone back to correct some of the excesses of the 81 tax giveaway, so they raised taxes, closed loopholes, did all these things that he talks about. One of the things with the, was that they imposed a withholding on interest and dividends uh, for banks and savings and loans. Dole blames that on the president for imposing, putting that in the bill. Uh, I heard him say on the Laura Ingram radio show two weeks ago, that was the president's idea. Well, I was in his office when he talked to the president about that provision in the bill in the summer of 82. And he said to him, Mr. President, we can't get to $98 billion on this tax bill unless we do one of two things. Now, he asked him a, a loaded question. 
Mr. President, do you want to raise energy taxes or do you want to just collect the taxes that are already owed on interest and dividend income? Well, of course, Reagan, unscripted. Says, oh, well, we, I think we did that in California. Sure, if you're just collecting taxes, that's not a tax increase. So they imposed that and all the banks cried and screamed and they didn't have the software to collect the taxes and, and all of that. And so the next year rolled around and there were, it was obviously going to be repealed because the banks and the savings and loans and the brokerage houses didn't know how to comply. So Dole went over to the American Bankers Association and gave a speech one night and just laid into them and said, you know, you guys are fighting me on this, fine. You, you, you fight me on this, then this is what's gonna happen. We're gonna impose this tax on you. We're gonna do this, we're gonna do that. He was just trying to say, don't, don't mess with me. This is something we've thought through. Didn't come across well at all. And there was a revolt in the banking industry. I mean, people really were angry at him and I had to bear the brunt of all that. I had to meet with the head of the associations and the leading bankers in the country and all that. And I, I came to understand that, that it was really not the right thing to do. So anyway, I went in. I said, I'm not going to tell you that I know enough about this, but I've met with all these people. So this is this man's opinion. This is this man's opinion. This is this woman's opinion. This is the way the software it need, it would be needed to do it. This is how much it would cost for them to invest so they could do it. It's, it's an idea whose time hasn't come, and it's a bad idea. So I think they're going to fight you, and they're going to win, and they're going to repeal it. So let's make the best out of it. So he was mad, and he was mad at his finance committee staff because they're the ones that they were saying, oh, come on, they're just a bunch of crybabies. This is nothing. So we had a, had a different view, and, and we worked out a compromise finally, and, and, and it was okay, but it was... I was usurping their authority in a way on the finance committee staff, so mm -hmm. they didn't like me for that. Dole didn't like it at first, and he ended up, in his way, dealing me into the meetings every day and making a point of coming back and sitting at my office, uh, sitting in my office every day and talking about it and making some phone calls with me and just kind of, that was his way of rewarding you for, for doing a good job. And was this, had you become AA by this point? or was This, this is right a, before. I think, right, this, yeah. I think this is why he decided, well, if he's stupid enough to come in here and tell me I'm wrong every now and then, maybe it's not so bad. Because it is surprising, as you describe the office and its politics and whatnot, that someone at age 29 can walk into that and stay afloat. You know, I, I, I wonder, because it would have been easy to be, to be quiet, but... Uh, it, it just happened. It seemed like the right thing to do. And I, I, I really, I had a kamikaze side to me that two or three or four times I would, I remember saying, I, you don't want to hear this, but this is, this is a perception you need to know. And it always made him mad. Always made him mad. And then sometimes he would agree. Sometimes he wouldn't agree. I would say we fought more than most staff people. We, we would actually get into it and and, and argue back and forth about things. And he would say nasty things to me, and I'd just laugh at him sometimes, and sometimes it would devastate me. Did you have little uh, mantras that you went through or little lectures oh, you I gave yourself? Oh, I wasn't nearly as quick as he was. <laughs> I wish I had been. Uh, no, I, I can only think of one or two things that, that really escalated and... Uh, and I let him know 
what was going on. I let him have a piece of my mind and, you know, it's natural. You work closely with somebody like that, you can, uh, I made him so mad one day that he invited me to go out to dinner with he and Elizabeth two nights later and without any further discussion of the subject. That was his way of saying, I've thought about it and you're right. We never talked about it again. Such indirection. Mm -hmm. I was no dummy. I knew how to read the tea leaves on that. Um, So how did your leaving his service uh, occur and what was that like? It was natural. My mother had died. I was kind of going through a period in my life in late 86 where, uh, you know, I was really burnt out and I didn't, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. And I, I knew that I, you know, he was going to bring in a whole new team of campaign people and they didn't know me. I liked them, the the people that we worked with, but there was no real particular role for me. And I was just going to be bouncing around and be frustrated working on the staff and be left out of the campaign. So I said, Hey, I want to, I want to travel around the country. I want to be part of the campaign, and I want to leave. And, and I told him what I wanted to do, and he said, well, if you can do it, that's fine. You know, he's, uh, it was very cordial, and, you know, he said, you'll have to find a replacement, and we'll have to work that out, and don't tell anybody until you're ready to do it, and, and all that. So it was, it was a very orderly process. Who did replace you? Uh, Chris Bolton. Um. By that time, I should say a lot of the, a lot of the center of gravity in the Dole operation really had shifted over to the leader's office, and you know, other than the subject matter things that I was working on, and, and there were some big things that we did, but uh, I really, I was I played by late '86. I was playing a little bit less of a role. I mean, he was getting ready to run for president, gone a lot. You know, when he was here, he was on the on the Senate floor a lot as majority leader. So. I was, it was a little bit less satisfying for me by that time. Um, clarify for me, I should have asked you this right at the beginning when you started talking about uh, your position as, as AA. How much of that was administrative and how much of it was more political? Well, I don't know, administrative. You know, yeah, somebody had to hire people, pay them a salary, make sure they got paid and prove their expenses and all that. I'm, I'm sure I had secretaries that did as much of that as I could do because I was no certainly trained administrator. Uh, you know, I tried to I tried to focus on the policy things and the things that I thought were fun. I tried to, you know, do as much as I could. There were there were times when, you know, I would, you know, try to do big level political things for Dole, sometimes with his imprimatur and sometimes not, you know, in the in eighty five and eighty six. He said to me one day, you know, rather than sit around and focus on all the little things around here, let's think about where we're going in 88. Let's start making sure we're talking to all the right people. And, you know, I just, just I went on about a three or four month uh, mission to just go meet everybody I could in town, the former guys that had run Nixon's campaign and the Reagan people and all that, and, you know, gathered a bunch of intelligence and presented it all to Dole. And, you know, he seemed... You know, whether that stepped on anybody else's toes, I don't know. Uh, But it was something I invented to do because I thought that's what he wanted me to do. And you still, right through this whole period, were continuing to do your work on banking and and, uh, energy. 
Yeah, there were, and, and communications, that was the big thing. That was the thing I liked the most. And we did a couple things for him that he got a lot of credit for in an area that he didn't know intuitively a lot about. But if you look at his career, Dole has probably passed or been, uh, I would say, at least three major telecommunications bill that he spent a lot of time and has his name on. And, and I did the work on all the ones that I was there. And then the 96 Act was when I was out of the Senate. But uh, he's done a lot of things in that area that he doesn't get much credit for. And were there others on the staff working that same area, or was that pretty much your ballot work? Well, at times, I brought in other people to help me because there were times when we need, I needed two other people to kind of staff me on it because there was a lot going on. But most of the time, I could do it all. How would you characterize the relationship between the personal staff and finance and the leader's office and, for that matter, uh, the cloakroom? It all depended. They treated me very well. They respected me and I respected them. That wasn't true across the board. Um, I, I worked really hard to cultivate relationships with most of those people when he was chairman of the finance committee and those guys were doing tax work. And a lot of the work I did would sort of seep over into their areas, and I would, I would help them and vice versa. So I had pre-established relationships with, I can still remember every one of those men and women, and I, and to this day, still see them and have, have uh, friendly relations with them. But, but generally, there was a condescending attitude by the Finance Committee staff towards the personal staff and a condescending attitude by the leader staff. So part of my job was to check that at the door when we could. Any particular instance where that really boiled up uh, in, a, in a profound way? Oh, they would, they just wouldn't do the, you know, a lot of, when they're different staffs all working for the same person trying to get a common work product out, very often one person would have to ask somebody else on another staff for help, review this letter, do this, do that, and they just were not responsive. You know, somebody that Dole had said, now, g- this guy raises a good question. Go find out a- the answer to this. And he'd tell me, well, you know, I didn't have expertise in the state and gift tax. I'd have to go find the guy on the finance committee staff, sit down, explain it to me so I could do my job. Well, they'd just blow me off. Or other people, I'm, I'm sure it happened to me, but it happened to the rest of the staff a lot. And, and so it was, you know, they were busy, you know, how to prioritize. All those issues came up. But there was, there was some condescension. Um, what about some of the senators who were floating in and out of the office? Who were they, and which ones were you, did you have interactions with? For the most part, Dole didn't want, except in areas where there was a real subject matter piece that I knew and I needed to explain to these other senators, I was not encouraged to go have my own relationships with other senators. Uh, in fact, he would we would sit down sometimes, and he would say, "Okay, that's a good idea. Now call call Chucky, call Grassley, call somebody, call," th-. and he would tell me who to call and who to who to go see. But on my own, uh, you know, the relationships I had were just accidental. You know, the people that I worked with on different issues. Scoop Jackson, I worked with on an issue, got to like him. Barry Goldwater, I worked with on an issue, got to like him, scared to death of him. Uh, there were, you know, Nancy Kassebaum was delightful always and wonderful to work with. And there were, I could go through a list. Uh, Towers people were pretty good. Uh, 
I liked them. I liked working with them. There were a lot of them, but but the senators themselves, I was I was a subordinate to Dole, and he and he liked it that way. That's different than the later when he was majority leader and people were you know the majority leader staff had a different relationship with all the, the members directly. What about senators who were likely to drift in and out of his office? Well, most of the ones that did in the early 80s were would be on committee work, uh, finance committee things, and I would, I would go run interference sometimes. I remember Steve Sims was always coming in from Idaho, and, and he was a junior member on the finance committee, and frankly, I think he overborrowed at Dole's time and attention, but Dole needed him to vote on things, so... I would have to go run interference with Steve Sims, and you know, mostly. I mean, I was used in that role a lot as a blocking tool to to keep people away from him to minimize the time he'd have to spend. Why were you? Uh, why did you have the reaction you did to Goldwater? <laughs> well, the first time that we ever worked on a tele- telecommunications thing, he was the chairman of the subcommittee on telecommunications. And he had been mistakenly told that I hadn't told his staff what we were doing. So he called me up to the podium when he's presiding over the Senate and uh, used very choice words to yell at me, uh, a stream of profanities, very funny at the time, uh, and very funny now, scared to death at the time. And he didn't turn his microphone off, so everybody could hear it. This is the days before... The Senate was televised, but it was on audio. People heard him using some choice uh, phrases towards me. And I saw him a couple times. He, he had, I think he had me confused with somebody that had done him wrong. I really do, because he was, he was always kind of glaring at me. And then the last night in the Senate, in 1986, before he retired, we were in the Senate all night working on an appropriations bill. And he and I and his staff had to negotiate this thing. And all night long, he was, now that night was one of the great nights of my life. He was drinking bourbon or scotch or whatever he drank all night and telling stories. And he was reminiscing about his life. And, and you know, I, I, I'm not sure that he connected me then to the guy that he used to be mad at. But I, that was a great night. And that was just before his retirement. That was the last night of the Senate in 19, in the fall of 1986. Well, we've come to the end of the first hour, right. so thank you. I'm rambling, I know. <laughs> well, if you're rambling, that's my responsibility. I, no, you're not. You're bringing so much um, 